I'm Stephen Metcalf, and this is the Slate Culture Gap Fest Country So Unreal edition. It's Wednesday, January 13th, 2021. On today's show, City So Real is a docuseries about the city of Chicago. It's by Steve James, he of Hoop Dreams, and America to Me. It's now streaming on Hulu, and it's a stunning achievement. And then only some of us were shocked to see the U.S. Capitol besieged and the democratic process of certifying Joe Biden's win ceremonially uh, halted by violence. Charlie Warzel of The Times will join us to discuss how right-wing media has so primed the inhabitants of its echo chambers as to make what happened on January 6th inevitable. And finally, The New Yorker has published a mammoth story on COVID by the veteran journalist Lawrence Wright. It's a tour de force covering virtually every aspect of the pandemic with the depressing through line that with a few important exceptions, we as a society have utterly failed in the face of this challenge. Joining me today is Julia Turner, the deputy managing editor of the LA Times. Hey, Julia. Hello, hello. Uh, and of course, Dana Stevens, film critic for Slate. Hey, Dana. Steven. Dana. Shall we, um, shall we go? Ready? Yeah. Okay, round two. Name something that's not boring. A laundry? Ooh, a book club. Computer solitaire, huh? Ah, oh, sorry. We were looking for Chumba Casino. That's right. Chumbacasino.com has over 100 casino-style games. Join today and play for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. Chumbacasino.com. No purchase necessary. law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Okay, well, typically, in a typical year, right around this time, the panel figures out, sort of informally, what was excellent in the previous year that we haven't yet covered. We do a little culling, and we do segments that are sort of untimely, but we think, in a way, kind of urgent. We don't want people to miss film X or TV show Y. It's been a little bit different this year, thanks to the pandemic, but uh, in the following segment, we're going to talk about City So Real, which is now on Hulu. Uh, it's about for, been out for a while, but we were committed to covering it. It premiered on the National Geographic channel. It's now on Hulu, and I think I will pound the table on this one. I believe you really must seek it out. It's a docuseries by Steve James, who I think is still best known for Hoop Dreams. We also covered America to me a few years ago. With this series, I got to say, James is elevated to national treasure status. I, I really do think this is remarkable. Uh, it's about the city of Chicago, but that's sort of like saying Moby Dick is a book about a fish. More or less begins with the trial of the white police officer who shot and killed Laquan McDonald, a black teenager, and takes us through the recent mayoral election up to COVID and the protests surrounding George Floyd. The style is very panoramic, immersive. There are no voiceovers. We're plunged, in other words, head to toe into the city of Chicago, one of the truly great American cities. And we confront over and over and over again the astonishing fact of a city, any city really, is made up of completely unique individuals, but also immediately recognizable social types. So we hear voices in a black barbershop. We hear the voices of ex-cops eating donuts. They have starkly contrasting worldviews. I don't want to minimize that. But they're also all distinctively Chicagoan. In addition to a shared religious feeling for the Bears, the football team, the NFL team, they all exhibit a kind of, I found this really striking, a kind of civic pride in Chicago's culture of political corruption, there's a Chicago way of doing <laughs> politics. They all seem to love that it's cutthroat in the extreme and bureaucratically arbitrary. Uh, uh, so at the heart of the show is this race for mayor. It pits, uh, it's 
a field of well over a dozen. It pits newcomer against establishmentarian, white against black, old against young. But also, I picked up a little bit of nostalgia for an older, more quote-unquote genteel politics of machine corruption against a new possibility uh, for, for real, real change and racial progress. Anyway... The trial of the police officer who killed Laquan McDonald gets a variety of responses that are hard to integrate into a single communitarian whole, but nonetheless, that sets up the documentary that follows. Let's listen. city needs to train these police officers to not shoot to kill, because I feel like this, if the police can go after somebody, they should have their day in court. They shouldn't be judge, juries, and executioners. What if Van Dyke is found innocent? anger, a lot of senseless protesting, and back to the norm, which is more killings in Chicago. The Laquan McDonald trial, is that something that you've been hearing about, reading about? I've heard about it a little bit, but I don't know enough to like, comment on it. I haven't really kept up on that. I haven't really followed it. Yeah, I also, I also don't know much about it. So, yeah. And, and why is that you think? I don't follow the news that much unless I have a lot of time to really dig deeper into a subject because often I find that the media is either so far left or so far right that in order to really understand the real story, you have to spend a lot of time digging into the middle. And uh, I just haven't had time to follow this one. Dana, I wonder if you're, if you like me, are just profoundly, profoundly grateful to have put this on the calendar and um, uh, followed through on the determination to see it. I was, I was completely floored. What'd you make of this? Yeah, I feel like if Steve James's name is attached to something, especially if it's about the city of Chicago, which essentially everything he's made, I think, in some way revolves around that locale. Uh, you you got to put it on your calendar. This, this is definitely unmissable. There's such a feeling of this having been made on the ground and on the fly and that you're watching it happen on the fly without without a predetermined structure or plan as to how the show is going to be made. And yet it's not particularly sprawling. It's only five episodes and each under an hour. So it, it gets its story told by the standards of current TV in a pretty compact way. But we really don't know going in how the mayoral race is going to be framed. We, of course, go in now from this perspective of the present, knowing that it's Lori Lightfoot who won this race, but she doesn't really become a character in this show until a good three episodes in. And uh, and so we really have a sense of that broad field that you talked about being you know, something that's completely uh, in play, especially because one of the big twists at the beginning of the show is that Rahm Emanuel declares, and we see his public declaration, that he's not going to run for another term as mayor. So suddenly the field is wide open, in flux in a whole new way. And we kind of witness all of that happening in real time. So it's this strange combination of, you know, a, a story that you know the outcome of, and yet that feels really exciting and uh, unpredictable as it's happening. First of all, I have to admit that I watched this in like a perfect state of political amnesia in which I could not, I didn't remember who won. I wasn't, I didn't feel like in meeting the characters, I was like, oh yeah, and that's the one who wins when I later, you know, when we find out the winner, I then quickly remembered like, oh, right, that person was a figure in the news. And I, um, but I, but I like, it was, I just had a perfect viewing experience where I actually had the suspense of the who's going to win driving the show. And I will say, even if you do remember at the outset who the winner is, like, 
one thing that's sort of delightful is that um, the ultimate winner emerges as like an incredibly smart and charismatic person who has their shit together more than the other candidates early on, um, but seems like a true long shot. And I spent the first couple episodes being like, wow, it's really a bummer that this incredibly competent seeming person isn't going to, isn't going to make it. Um, and anyway, I just couldn't have had a better experience watching it and I, I can't recommend it strongly enough. Yeah. I mean, I come in right behind both of you. I think people really ought to watch this and they'll be thrilled by it. It's not homework. It's not spinach. It's not broccoli. It's just immersive and, and wonderful. And, you know, I, I don't, I, I, you know, New York city, faces the world, right, in its own way, faces outward and faces the world. You know, LA is the movie business, it has a global aspect to it, and a obviously very national aspect to it as well. It supplies all of us with entertainment. Chicago is just, it's such a monumental, it's such a gigantic, monumental, self-consciously big American city that yet looks inward. There's something about Chicago's gigantism combined with its introspection, right? It's social and cultural introspection. It's sense that it's itself, that it's in the middle of the country. It is the great Midwestern city. All of this is on display. And therefore its politics is real politics, like civic, urban, favor trading, you know, high polish and bullshit, corruption driven, urban machine, heavily democratic, exclusively democratic, really politics. And, uh, one of the graphic choices that they made in terms of of like graphic design is that is that it's a city of neighborhoods right it's just like every neighborhood is its own inter- internally regulating ecosystem with its own mores and and worldview and you so every time you go into a new scene it shows you graphically what neighborhood it is as part of this map of the whole of Chicago. So you always know you're not getting everything here. You're getting you're getting this neighborhood's expression of its own identity, at least in some in some degree. And to me, Dana, it just kept raising the issue of the relationship of the parts to the whole, which is in some way the American question, right? Like we're hyper-individualists. We're told that our own individual pursuit of happiness is our, you know, kind of most our highest calling in a way is to pursue our own individual notion of success in some sense and so we're faced constantly with the question of what does that hyper individualism add up to in the aggregate socially do we make a society together and then is that relationship a reciprocal one does this notion of america play back into what that pursuit is or should be and at a moment when the country appears to be just splintering apart right fragmenting apart I was equally hopeful and despairing watching this. There are moments when you think, oh my God, we are all so fucking rooted in our own narcissistic worldview. We will never come together and form a integrated and functional whole. And there were other moments when I was like, they're all fucking Chicagoans. Like they already have that. They already are that. They already in playing these roles for one another, they are part of a single drama and conceive of themselves that way. I don't know. I mean, I, I was on that fence and was deliriously happy to be on it because I think it gets at something true. But uh, anyway, curious what you make of that. Right. I mean, I think maybe, Steve, for whatever reason, maybe you just got more sleep. I think you watched this in a more hopeful <laughs> frame of mind than I did. I mean, you're absolutely right that Steve James loves Chicago pictorially as well. He's just so, so great at documenting the city and the elevated train and the skyline and all the things that those sort of recognizable Chicago landmarks 
But what kept standing out to me, I guess, especially in the midst of, you know, the, the place that electoral politics has brought us to on the, the federal level is just how, in a way, hopelessly screwed the whole the whole <laughs> system of electoral yeah. politics and political <laughs> parties and primaries and voting and signatures and all of this is. I mean, you just you see so much chicanery just going on openly between these candidates. And, you know, I won't spoil what what all of it is. But, you know, there's just plenty of scenes where either two candidates or two representatives for two or more different candidates are essentially admitting to each other, you know, what we are doing right now is purely symbolic warfare that benefits absolutely no one except ourselves. And, you know, they continue to do it. And all of the candidates, including the most progressive and idealistic ones, are shown in some way or another exploiting the system or the media for their own benefit. There's not really any sense in this uh, in this documentary that there's a place of purity or, you know, righteousness in American politics, even though some of these individual candidates are, are really admirable people. So you find yourself really, I think, toggling between that kind of idealism you were talking about, the idea of a, a community that comes together out of extreme diversity and difference, and, you know, just the impossibility of even a single barbershop full of people getting anything successfully understood or done. Sure. And I should say that what hope I took from this documentary mitigated as it qualified as it is, was more a sort of social cultural one that we're like, and I don't mean to aestheticize the plights of Chicagoans, especially, you know, black Chicagoans at all, but it there we're so fucking inexorably ourselves, right? That we form a civic whole in spite of ourselves. Um there's just something about this magnificent landscape and conflict is part of what knits it together weirdly but i do not in any way mean to indicate that the kinds of change that a community like chicago needs are mammoth and they you are not hopeful that they will be achieved at the, at the end of this documentary yeah two, two quick things i would also add just as our in our push to get people to sit down and watch this one willa paskin is one of this documentary's huge huge advocates and so is robert lloyd the tv critic at the la times um and willa's line on it in the tv club was it's like the wire or the good fight but real <laughs> like any there's so many of these characters who could just show up in yeah. in one of those shows and james talks about his admiration for for season 4 of the wire and simon's portrayal of of that complexity of the structural and the bureaucratic and the particular and the personal in the in the true um execution of city politics i i think that influence is real and possibly both ways um but you know, it it's it it has some of the hallmarks of some of the best political dramas of the last twenty years in it. Um, and then, secondarily, it's just such an impressive piece of documentary film making. The crew was about three people: James, his son, and and a longtime collaborator. There are moments where they seem to be all over the city. The graphics that show up and highlight what neighborhood they're in at the beginning. I think Chicago has fifty eight wards. Um, I wouldn't, it, it seemed to me like the conceit is that they report from all of the wards. I didn't actually go back and count and I couldn't confirm this in any of the reporting, but I think they really try to show the whole city in a fascinating way. The scene you mentioned, Steve, where they're in multiple bars for the same um, vital Bears game is just so moving. And you think about how many documentaries we've watched that are just like 10 heads in a row in front of their bookcases. And you just feel like those people should go like bury themselves in the sand in shame. Like it's, it's <laughs> so, uh, it's so ambitious. I mean, for three people to do this they they feel like they're everywhere. Like they're all over the city in this way that is just 
an impressive feat of reporting and visual reporting and the way they find to compose beautiful shots of like a thousand dingy bureaucratic rooms with beige chairs. Um, it's just, it's just glorious. Yeah. I mean, I love it when the three of us pound the table in unison and, um, this is, this is definitely one of those, one of those, uh, items uh i wish i could like if you don't have hulu plus like email me for my login you know i mean i just really want people to watch city so real as i say it's a it was a it started on a national geographic channel but it is now on hulu so please check it out and uh, talk to us about it on uh, email or twitter or wherever okay moving on apple card is the perfect cashback rewards credit card you earn up to three percent daily cash on every purchase every day that's three percent on all your favorite products at apple 2% on all other Apple Card with Apple Pay purchases, and 1% on anything you buy with your titanium Apple Card or virtual card number. Visit apple.co slash card calculator to see how much you can earn. Apple Card issued by Goldman Sachs Bank USA Salt Lake City branch. Subject to credit approval. Terms apply. All right, now is the moment in our podcast we discuss business. Dana, what, uh, what do we have? Steve, our only real item of business this week is to tell listeners about today's Slate Plus segment. This is kind of an old question in arts criticism, right? Um, what's the difference between that which is popular and enjoyable and that which we might call good? And does making that distinction make you a snob? So we'll be talking about that in our Slate Plus bonus segment today, and members can look forward to that. If you are not a Slate Plus member, as always, you can sign up and get a free two-week trial at slate.com slash culture plus. And of course, if there's anything you would like us to discuss in a future Slate Plus segment, you can send us an email at culturefest at slate.com. And back to the show. Charlie Warzel is a writer at large for the New York Times opinion pages. He's been writing for quite a while now about, as he says, the hatred, trolling, violent harassment, and conspiracy theorizing that has now moved from the internet's underbelly to the White House. Charlie, welcome to the podcast. Thanks for having me. Uh, what I'm struck reading your work, your recent work, and especially the work uh, uh, since January 6th, was that how the 6th was sh- Shocking, but almost the most shocking thing of all was how inevitable it had become. <laughs> I, I think that's exactly right. Um, un, you know, unfortunately, myself and, uh, you know, a lot of my peers in the journalism industry, most of whom, strangely enough, are tech reporters of some kind, uh, have been have been following this, you know, throughout the throughout the Trump era and, and have sort of watched the escalations, right, from the sort of... Um, you know, like a pro-Trump media complex that sort of came up. There's a lot of sort of independent trolls and influencers online who kind of became a, a pro-Trump press corps. Uh, and and then, you know, alongside that, there are these other splinter communities, uh, message board communities, you know, places where sort of the, the MAGA ethos grows and foments. And then starting in 2017, uh, the obviously the, the QAnon conspiracy movement and, you know, all of those things sort of congeal and then separate at different times. And, um, you know, we've just been, been watching it build and build. And uh, I think we've seen very scary moments like, uh, you know, in October, the plot to kidnap um, Gretchen Whitmer, uh, you know, there are these things and, and it never really came to, came to a head. We never sort of really saw, you know, it, it break into, um, mass, you know, violence. And, uh, unfortunately this was sort of the moment that we were all like wincing and hoping wouldn't come true. So 
Charlie, I've been a follower and admirer of your work for so long. It's really fun to finally get to talk to you. Fun might not be the right word for this topic at this moment in American history, but we'll, we'll allow it. Um, you know, one word that struck me in a column that you wrote last week or one phrase is the reality crisis in America. Mm-hmm. And, you know, as an editor and journalist, like I, I my career is devoted to <laughs> covering reality and telling people about reality. Um, and I think you know, one thing that January 6th does is raise awareness of the extent and the potential damage that this alternate fact set and dual reality structure of our information ecosystem um, can impose. Um, But it also leaves us with the question of like, what the hell do we do about it? I mean, I spent a bunch of time in the last 48 hours um, watching not just Fox News, but also listening to a stream of OAN and watching Newsmax's evening show. Sean Spicer has a show on Newsmax called Spicer and Co., which I was not aware of. Co. appears to be a blonde anchor who doesn't merit a name in the title. Um, Anyway, I mean, I don't encounter this alternate reality in my perambulations around the internet and the news ecosystem unless I force myself to. And when I do, it's shocking what's there. And I'm curious for your thoughts on whether there's a remedy and if so, what it is. Well, I think, I think some of it is, is honestly just realizing, I mean, I've been reporting on these communities and places in the internet and this reality crisis for a really long time. And I think one thing that people just generally like uh, Americans writ large just don't really always grasp is that, you know, a lot of the things that are being said online are not, it's not, posturing it's people's actual opinions like especially you know these toxic facebook groups and comments and things like that i mean facebook a lot makes you append your own name to these groups i mean this is what they believe um a thing i've been thinking a lot about in the past couple of uh weeks or basically since the election and talking with people about is the idea that we've spent the last whatever four and a half five years talking about the supply side of this right which is the platform's the algorithms, the grifters, the trolls, the, you know, the Republican Party, <laughs> uh, you know, being this, the, the merchants of supply here. We don't talk enough about the demand, which is that there's a number of people who are actually courting this alternate reality. That is a much stickier problem. That is a that is a problem that needs to be solved by policy. That is a problem that needs to be solved by good governance. Um, I mean, I like this is basically a rot that we see at like the the heart of American democracy. And I think that we need this is not a like like tech solutions will only go so far to address this. But you I think what you have is is you have a mental health crisis in America, you have a lot of suffering, Um, you have, you know, economic inequality, you have a, a, a lot going on, and it doesn't excuse any of this behavior at all. But I think that it's it's an issue that, you know, for the next four years, I plan to sort of look into the, the demand side of this and how we sort of address that. Can I ask you a personal question about your own brain as someone who is less of a dilettante in encountering these theories? I mean, one thing that struck me um, listening to a congressman on Newsmax last night explain why he went through and, you know, voted to contest the electoral votes of certain states, you know, he... he he reminded me of a friend I used to have who was like an MIT educated doctor who became an anti-vaxxer kook. Um, and 
it, you know, he not only did he believe what he was saying, he believed in the rightness of what he was saying. He he pointed out that he objected to certain states but not others because, of course, he was applying a strict con- constitutional standard. And the reason he objected to Arizona but not some other state was because in Arizona there had been some ruling. You know, like there there is a ch- there there is a it's not just blunt assertion. Like there is a set of facts, and I always felt, you know, in the in the days before you know, truly not speaking to this anti-vax friend anymore, there would be moments where we would like argue. And it was hard to win the argument because she knew so many things about these alleyways. And, you know, like I hadn't done the work to learn all the counterpoints to all the crazy ass things she was saying. Um, And it's just very easy in the standard media ecosystem to like not be particularly aware of what the chapter and verse argument is about why it is that so many, you know, representatives and and, um, senators were objecting to Arizona. And like, do you ever find yourself pulled by the alternate fact set or like, how, how do you encounter it and keep your own grip on reality? Personally, I, I struggle more with sort of the existential, you know, staring into the abyss of uh, you know, a sizable percentage of the country just not living in the same reality as myself. And that's what I struggle with uh, as someone who deals with this. In terms of struggling with the actual facts themselves, I, I really don't. But I think it, I think what you bring up is really important, which is that it is an incredibly difficult task to de-radicalize somebody who has fallen, you know, down some of these rabbit holes. Um, it is really, really difficult. I've, I've written about it a little. Um, you know, what it basically takes is, is like, you can't scale this process. There's no sort of, like, you know, video you can put on for a bunch of people or, like, you know, it's it's very easy for, like, a viral video to sort of, you know, start the process of radicalization. The de-radicalization is incredibly personal. You know, you need somebody who's willing to spend lots of time, be extraordinarily empathetic and understanding uh, and, and patient and diligent encountering these things. And I think that's what's really scary is it's so easy. There's, you know, there's a million ways in and there's like one or two ways out. Oh. Happy New Year. <laughs> uh, Dana, we haven't heard from you. Yeah, Julia, when you talk about your your anti-vax friend having this seemingly not reasonable, maybe, but meaningful set of statistics or or facts to counter your argument with, I was thinking of my own uh, plunge into the depths of of right-wing media. We all agreed that we would spend some time either on Fox or OANN or Newsmax or one of these alt-right kind of sources. And uh, and the way I did that was to listen to an hour or so of, of OANN radio, which I think it was the only non-paywalled way I could find, you know, a way, way to hear some OAN without having to give any money to the operation. And what struck me about it the most at first was how seemingly reasonable, how much it sounded like regular news radio for, for large portions of that hour, even as it was asserting facts that were contrary to things that we had all seen unroll before our very eyes last week. And the example that comes to mind, and I wonder if Charlie has anything to say about this kind of shift in perspective, is the way they presented the story of Brian Sicknick, the Capitol police officer who was killed at the, whatever we're calling it, at the, you know, attempted coup. Uh, you know, you would you would think that this would present an uncomfortable fact for right-wing media, right? That a, a cop, generally a job that is, you know, held in high esteem by the right, is beaten to death at, you know, what they're framing as this righteous insurrection. Um uh, 
but there was a strange way that Brian Sitnik's death was just folded into, you know, the traditional sort of way of presenting the death of a police officer as something heroic. And uh, and so there was a whole piece on him and his family and their you know, mourning and their desire for privacy, et cetera, exactly the way that you would see, you know, this kind of death be be shown had this this officer died in some more traditionally heroic way than being, you know, simply sacrificed by this angry mob that was, in fact, on the side of the media company presenting it. And so it was very easy to see how that radicalization could happen by by slow steps, right? I mean, you were hearing this apparently objective story of the sad death of this man who was just doing his job, and there was just this complete omission of the agency of how that death came about. I wrote in 2017 in January, um, the day of the, the day after the inauguration of Donald Trump, uh, about the rise of this pro-Trump media ecosystem and the fact that basically, you know, they were like I, I compared it to uh, Stranger Things as the upside down, right? It's like a, a mimicking reality in in every way, except sort of like a reverse image and a little bit darker. Um, and that's really what it is. It, it's it's modeled after the mainstream media. And it takes, you know, at the same time that it calls, um, you know, the mainstream media the enemy of the people, um, it bases a lot of its content off of mainstream media reporting. Um, because I think of it as one of those on-ramps, right? A way to get someone to sort of, you know, take the heuristics they understand and, and put them onto, uh, you know, essentially what is either propaganda or or conspiracy theories. So I, I, that to me is is a really formidable issue. And it's it's part of, I think, what we're all struggling with right now in this, you know, this social era of the internet where we kind of, you know, flipped a couple of switches, democratized publishing, uh, and then basically funneled extreme amounts of attention at it. Uh, and, and, and that attention means money, that attention means power. And, you know, we're dealing with a fallout right now. And I think we need to we, we need to really, um, whether it's government, whether it's these social media companies, like this should be a come to Jesus moment. This, this right. has to be something. All right. That's where I was going to go next, Charlie, which is, you know, to what degree, you know, what is the, we're all trying to figure out, those of us who, who have nep- not been part of these echo chambers trying to figure out how deep, how pervasive the commitment to unreality is in the country and you know one way of thinking about the pandemic was it was just reality heaving into the worlds and worldviews of some of the, you know the fox viewership oan whatever into this alternate media saying no like expertise you have to take as a matter of not just death but mass death right not just death but intimate death people that you know are going to be lost to this you know that the reality pr- principle would finally reassert itself in some way well that has been widely refuted by the response to the pandemic by a broad plurality of the country. I wonder, is there any way in which January 6th operates as this come to Jesus moment? Is there some reality principle being sort of people, is there enough of the hardcore far right wing of the Republican party? Is, is, is it, is there enough of a mainstream mentality there to believe that, that, that that was an act of public desecration and that a rethink might be possible? The way I've been thinking about it and some of my reporting is, I don't even know if it's bearing this out, but um, the way that I'm thinking about it is that this is sort of a um, 
it's an organizational moment, right? Like, I don't think that there is one trajectory here. I don't think that there's a group, you know, a, a, the broad mass of people looks at this and says, okay, well, you know, that was a fun four years. I'm done. Uh, you know, this is like, I, I've, th like, the line has been drawn. But I do think for a number of people, the line has been drawn. I talked to a, a few people who uh, went to that rally, uh, the, the Trump part of the rally, uh, and then sort of watched the migration to the Capitol and the siege. And again, you know, they could be lying to me. This is always a possibility uh, <laughs> that I take uh, seriously. Um, but there were a number of people who expressed, you know, who traveled long distances and spent a lot of money and, and were disgusted and said, you know, I, I don't think that this movement is for me right anymore. Um, and I think that there is like an organizational principle to that. I also think that, you know, that there are those for whom this was a, you know, this was a propaganda win. Uh, and this was a, uh, this was a radicalizing moment. I mean, I've, I've been following some people on the internet who have clearly been further radicalized by this and will only go kind of deeper into this world and sort of see, and it's, it's, that's incredibly troubling. So I think it's a sorting moment. Uh, and I think what's, what's, what's a positive takeaway is that I think there are people who are going to say, you know, this isn't worth it. Uh, especially this guy, you know, this, this, the leader of this party, um, you know, is, is not worth this fight. Uh, and, but I think the, the scary part is that there are some people who, um, as I've seen are, are clearly willing to, you know, actually go down with the ship. All right. Well, Charlie at the, you know, the, you, you've done extraordinary work actually reporting and covering this reality crisis. So uh, it feels unfair to also ask you to fix it. But I'm curious on your advice for our listeners, many of whom I would imagine um, have similar media profiles to the three of us and don't regularly expose themselves to Newsmax nightly broadcasts or the kind of darker, more raffish and weird um, small websites that post even even stranger things and look less like the mainstream media. Um, is your recommendation to people with that media consumption profile, like, do we need to know more about this world? Do we need to encounter it directly to be aware of it and combat it? Should we continue in the reality of reality <laughs> and continue ignoring it? Like, what's the best course of it? You know, should should we not read it, but in fact, call all of our uh, representatives like what's the what's the right course of action for um, someone with a newly heightened awareness of the reality crisis I think that people should definitely continue to live in the reality section of the news like definitely don't like don't get so you know wrapped up in trying to understand the enemy that you start to sort of lose focus because I, I will say this is you know I've, I've I and a lot of my peers have been staring into the abyss for a half decade now. And there are times when you do sort of like get a little turned around, right? With on a specific issue or a specific point or um, so it, it is kind of like a, a tightrope to walk if you want to just immerse yourself in this. I mean, I think there is a lot of great reporting out there. You know, uh, Ben Collins, Brandy Zdrozny at NBC News do a great job. Julia Carey Wong at The Guardian. Um, Joan Donovan is at the Shorenstein Center uh, for Media at Harvard. She's a disinformation researcher. Um, you know, my colleagues at the Times, Davy Alba, Shira Frankel, all these people do phenomenal jobs. Um, that the like the the coverage and reporting on this ecosystem is out there. 
uh, seek it out and try to understand a little bit more about these movements. Um, and, and, and be attentive to those in your life who you see, you know, potentially moving towards those areas and, uh, and have, you know, if you do see that have reach out to them, um, be, you know, open-minded and, and kind towards them and empathetic, especially, you know, if they're just sort of starting to flirt with this stuff, uh, it, it is much easier to sort of pull them back by saying like, Hey, like, you know, let's try to, let's try to understand why you think this, you know, creating, finding little spaces to create cognitive dissonance, right? If there's some huge, vast conspiracy that's been, you know, trumpeted for four years uh, and we haven't seen one shred of proof, you know, ask them, well, why haven't we? Like, try to go down that that path a little with them. Be, be careful with it. Um, if someone seems like they're fully radicalized, um, it's probably not worth your time. Uh, and, and, you know, it could potentially even end up being a little bit dangerous for you. So, you know, be careful with that. But, um, I really like, there is a, there's a lot of scary stuff right now regarding this, but I, one huge positive is that a lot of people are waking up to this. And I think that that even means some of these companies, some, uh, these tech companies, some of the lawmakers, like, I think we're going to see movement in this space. I think it's going to be um contentious and i think it's going to be uh i think it's going to be a pretty scary dark period but i i am hoping that it's sort of a little bit like our current period of the coronavirus where it's you know it's a little bit darkest before uh before things start to get better so that's that's like the hopeful part uh, of me thinks that all right well thank you for ending on a hopeful note uh charlie warzel is a writer at large for the new york times opinion pages charlie thank you so much for coming on and talking to us about this i, I really hope we have you back yeah, anytime. Hey guys, it is Ryan. I'm not sure if you know this about me, but I'm a bit of a fun fanatic when I can. I like to work, but I like fun too. It's a thing. And now the truth is out there. I can tell you about my favorite place to have fun. Chumba Casino. They have hundreds of social casino style games to choose from with new games released each week. You can play for free anytime, anywhere and each day brings a new chance to collect daily bonuses. So join me in the fun. Sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. VTW. Void. We're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus. Lawrence Wright is a veteran Texas journalist, in my estimation, a great journalist. He's also something of a renaissance man. He's a musician, a playwright, a novelist. Anyway, his nonfiction book, The Looming Tower, is regarded as a definitive history of the rise of Al-Qaeda. He's now written what I think presents itself as ambitiously attempting to be the definitive account thus far of the pandemic, at the heart of which I would say is a simple thesis, in its way is as immersive and panoramic as City So Real. But at the heart of it is just the idea that we collectively have failed and failed spectacularly in the face of this challenge. Towards the end of the article, he quotes uh, various national surveys. 95% of Danish respondents said that their country had handled the crisis capably, he says. In Australia, the figure was 94%. The United States and the United Kingdom, the only two countries where a majority believed otherwise. In Denmark, 72% said the country had become more unified since the contagion emerged. 18% of Americans felt this way. Julia, I, I want to just start with you as an editor. This is a behemoth. I think it's a 30,000-word article, if I'm not mistaken. It's it's essentially a small book. And for point of comparison, that's that's you know almost three-quarters as long as like The Great Gatsby. It really is, is book-like in its scope. Um, as an editor, what did you make of it as a piece of journalism and, and help us maybe focus the conversation? Yeah, I mean, I am so excited to talk about this with you. And it's funny because this piece landed 
right around the new year and set out to be, I think, the definitive, to offer a definitive analysis of how America fucked this up so badly. Um, It's not an account of the full global pandemic, although it does zoom out globally and and sort of thinking about the origins of the pandemic and the American response to it. Um, You know, I think the, the greatest service this piece does is really in offering that analysis and in highlighting what it sees as the key three structural breaches that that caused America to have such a failed response. Um, you know, the, the first is failing to quickly understand that asymptomatic transmission was, you know, not just possible, but a, a key driver of transmission for this particular virus. Um, the second was the failure of the CDC to make a test that works, and then also its efforts to control testing rather than kind of dispersed testing. We were much slower to have accurate tests then many other countries. Um, And then the third is the failure to recognize that masks um, could help prevent transmission and consistently message around that. So just offering like a zoomed out answer is so valuable. A place where I think the piece does less well is in the tapestry aspect. I think there are a lot of voices in this piece and a lot of voices missing. And it almost makes me wish that we could read the version that's two and a half times longer, perhaps we will in a book someday soon, um, because I, I almost don't want to pin it on right, the voices that are not in here, but I think there's an interesting pattern to what's missing. But we can get to that. Um, curious what, what you guys made of it. I think maybe the most impressive thing about this as a piece of reporting and, and storytelling is the way that it takes a lot of data points that we sort of knew that you can't really have gotten through 2020 paying any attention without knowing the rough outline of all of this. And by putting them in a in a particular timeline and juxtaposing them in a particular way and weaving in these individual stories in between makes you see the entire disaster kind of emerging in what what feels like real time as you're reading. I mean, in a sense, I feel like this this article, this, what is it, 30,000 word article, packs in almost the same amount of information as that entire book we read early in the pandemic, John Barry's The Great Influenza. It feels like reading this at the end of the COVID year, after having read that one together at the beginning, is creates this kind of bookend, right? What is it like to actually tell this story, not 100 years later, but as it's happening? And just to give an example, I mean, some of the things that were known about this virus, really serious things, were known so much earlier than anyone in the U.S. was was talking about them. I mean, certainly at our level, right, just citizens experiencing this this pandemic in our lives, but also at the level of government. He kicks off, Lawrence Wright kicks off with this conversation that happened between Robert Redfield, the head of the CDC, and a highly placed Chinese scientist who's briefing him on what's going on in, in Wuhan and other parts of China. And that's happening in January. I, I think it's happening at the same time, roughly, as the uh, as the impeachment hearing. So it's late January that this Chinese scientist is on the phone with Robert Redfield, weeping about how intractable this huge, growing epidemiology disaster in his country is, and the idea that and then and then there's a briefing, a congressional briefing that Mitch McConnell announces on the impeachment hearing floor, you know, everybody's coming tomorrow to this briefing about this new virus coming from China, and something like 20 senators go to the briefing, right? So you just you just see, it's, it's like a monster movie, where you see this thing kind of emerging from the depths, while everybody is looking in the opposite direction. I mean, there's so many, you can grab at any part of this this beast and, and pick out something horrifying and, and really just like deeply dismaying about political leadership in this country, but one that jumped out to me was 
Larry Kudlow, this complete ninny out of Bonfire of the Vanities. I'm in an 80s relic who never should have seen the halls of power again. He's He says it can't possibly be serious because the stock market is high. The stock market, he, he has this it, massive ideological prior, which is that the, the, the markets are perfect discounting mechanisms. They see the future collectively better than any individual medical expert does. Is all the money dumb, he wondered? Everyone's asleep at the switch? So, of course, you know, he, you know, he denies having made these statements. I, I would bet everything I own that he did. But Mnuchin, similarly, like a total reluctance to shut down the economy. This, this totally committed belief that shutting down the economy, you know, net-net is going to cause more damage than the the virus. So committed to that belief, you're willing to tolerate a mass casualty event. And then ultimately, and I'm sure these two things are related, the downgrading of Deborah Burks and Fauci in favor of Atlas and Navarro, people who essentially want this to be a herd immunity approach um, because of this ideological commitment, right? And it just, I I don't know, you can, you know, but Julia, you know, another place to focus on the political class's relative indifference to the mayhem and death that have, you know, proceeded from the um, from the non-economic or non-directly economic mayhem and death that have proceeded from the pandemic has to do with how inequitably distributed the pain of it is. So it overwhelmingly affects the old, uh, uh, the poor, the black, and the brown, um, and. This, that's not a small part of this article. That's that's definitely something Wright is interested in focusing on. What do you what do you think? Yeah, I mean, I think that's the place where I'd like to see the longer cut, even as long as this story was, um, because I there were there were a few things that were striking to me about how the piece approached talking about the impact on less powerful people in the country. Um, First of all, there are almost no Latino voices in the story. Mm. Um, and the there is a black doctor who we meet and whose childhood in the Western Carolinas we hear about um, and who, who sort of becomes the voice of the disparate medical impact. But she's, she's a professional, you know, sort of everyone we, almost everyone we hear from is a professional in a way that, I don't know, seem to impose a filter on whose voices are useful to hear that's slightly at odds with the um, impact of the pandemic on non-professionals. And obviously some of the frontline workers are medical professionals and they've been um, really hit by the carelessness and incompetence of the government response. But you know, just I, I was yearning a little bit for um, the stories of the Instacart delivery person or the checkout cashier or, you know, the person who's um, kind of a child care and schooling situation relative to their hourly shift work uh, and its increasing unpredictability. Like that to me is some of the most kind of urgent and underseen pain of the pandemic, I just felt like those voices were missing, you know, and those voices don't have enough power in government as we've, as we've seen in cities so real and as is evident. Um, and 
I just felt like the structure of this published version replicated that a little bit by sort of finding professional voices to explain the disparate impact on, 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 on non-professional classes. Um, and that's my one note, which like I would bet you everything I own that there's a lot of those voices on the cutting room floor and that, you know, perhaps the, like I, I don't chalk that up as a criticism of write at all or even necessarily the editing because I think we wouldn't, it would be harder to see the clear, okay, these were the three failures if the piece were 70,000 words long instead of 30. Um, but I, I think the full account of what happened and how America failed has to center some of those voices in different ways than this story did. Yeah, Julia, I think maybe the exception that proves the rule of what you just said, I think you're you're absolutely right that those are some of the voices that are missing. But to me, one of the most affecting and memorable parts of this article has to do with someone who loses a parent to COVID-19 and just what it's like to be that person in that situation that we've been hearing about all year, but have not necessarily heard reported from the inside in this way, you know, being the person who's who's brought in in full PPE to say goodbye to someone you love in this horrible sci-fi like atmosphere. And he's such a great storyteller, Lawrence Wright is, and so good at evoking just material details of daily life that it would have been great if there were some fewer scenes in the halls of power and more mm-hmm. in places like that. One thing I agree, Dana, and, and very much agree, Julia. I, one thing I would add is that uh, Lawrence Wright is himself 73 years old. He's a septuagenarian. And I, I felt that in reading the piece, that that there's, there is an ageism uh, at work in, in both public policy and I think to a degree public attitude towards the disease. There is a not acute enough sense of what it is like to deprive people of, even if it's a year, I mean, just how precious time comes at the end of a person's life. The people I know who've been personally know who have died of COVID are uh, over the age of 70. Um, and uh, I know young children who are being deprived of at least a decade, if not two, if not 25 years or more of a grandparent. Um, I, you know, I, I felt in this piece, there was an acute sensitivity to the human cost of the last portion of people's lives being abbreviated by a disease like this. And, um, that might've been absent in an article written by a 35 or a 45 year old, quite understandably, but I was grateful for its presence in this piece. Okay, the piece I should say is called The Plague Year. It's by the extraordinary journalist Lawrence Wright. It's in the December 28th, 2020 edition of The New Yorker. All right, moving on. This episode is brought to you by Progressive Insurance. Hey, listeners, whether you love true crime or comedies, celebrity interviews, news, or even motivational speakers, you call the shots on what's in your podcast queue, right? And guess what? Now you can call the shots on your auto insurance, too. Enter the Name Your Price tool from Progressive. The Name Your Price tool puts you in charge of your auto insurance by working just the way it sounds. You tell Progressive how much you want to pay for car insurance. Then they'll show you a variety of coverages that fit within your budget, giving you options. Now, that's something you'll want to press play on. It's easy to start a quote, and you'll be able to choose the best option for you, fast. It's just one of the many ways you can save with Progressive Insurance. Quote today at Progressive.com to try the Name Your Price tool for yourself and join over 28 million drivers who trust Progressive. Progressive Casualty Insurance Company and Affiliates. Price and coverage match limited by state law. I want to tell you about a new show from the Financial Times called Life and Art from FT Weekend. Hosted by me, Lila Raptopoulos. Life and Art is twice a week. 
On Mondays, I have a guest on to talk about life and how to live a good one. Everything from winter travel to cooking to living more creatively. And on Fridays, we talk art. Two FT journalists and I discuss a piece of culture that's in the air. New music, movies, and more. Find life and art from FD Weekend wherever you listen. All right, now is the moment in our podcast when we endorse Dana. What do you have? Stephen, this week, I think I will fulfill my civic duty as Slate's film critic and re- recommend a movie, um, a movie that was on the runners-up for my 10 best list this year, but that has been really underseen in part because of the pandemic and in part just because it's a tiny, small-budget movie with a tiny distributor. But uh, but I think it's really worth seeking out. In, in a way, I'm also endorsing the place where you can go and find this movie, which is Grasshopper Film. A great thing about the, uh, the closure of theaters during the pandemic, one bit of silver lining to it is that a lot of small distributors movie distributors that otherwise, you know, would be putting out movies maybe in a couple big urban centers are now releasing these tiny indies where everybody can watch them online for a reasonable price. And the one that I'm going to endorse on Grasshopper Film is called 14. It's a movie by Dan Sallett, who I've talked about before on this podcast as a critic, really. And as a writer, he has a blog, just a very old school kind of, you know, old-fashioned, almost image-free, type-only blog about uh, about movies, whichever movies he goes out to see, and is just a, a great writer about classic film. I think I once endorsed a, a blog post he wrote on, on Howard Hawks. Anyway, he is also a filmmaker, and usually his films get seen by about 10 people per year. But this movie, 14, which, came, which was made in 2019 and then held for release until this year, is actually getting seen by more people and noticed on more year-end lists. I'm seeing it showing up in different places. 14 is a story of the friendship between two women it's called 14 because they meet in middle school but they're in their 20s during most of the movie and uh without giving too much away it's essentially about um, an increasingly unstable friend and how you deal with that you know with the sort of um, demise of that friendship and uh substance abuse is involved um, mental illness is involved it's a tough movie in some ways but it's also full of humor and really really wonderful performances um it's only 94 minutes long and it really hit the spot for me this year when I saw it. So if you want to look at 14, it is on Grasshopper Film, along with tons of other great indies. Please explore that site and get back to me. Tell me what you found. Julia, what do you have? I have two recommendations related to uh, the Japanese artist Hokusai, who everybody probably knows from his views of Mount Fuji series, um, much reproduced. Um There was a wonderful essay in August in the New York Times that I missed, uh, a part of their Close Read series, which is an interesting interactive look at Hokusai's art and how it was perceived at the time, how it uh, was perceived in the West at the moment, and sort of reproduction in art. He made prints that were reproduced, and so they didn't have the scarcity that uh, sometimes brings a sense, a perception of value to art for being rare. Um, But it's just a really smart, interesting, contextual look at his work, which I'd never really read about apart from having seen it everywhere and admired it. Um, And then somehow the very same week that this came to me on Internet Currents, uh, I also found via a Kotki link that someone has made a gigantic uh, Lego recreation (laughs) of... Uh, perhaps one of Hokusai's most famous images, The Great Wave Off Kanagawa. Um, and it's it's the one you remember where you can barely tell that Mount Fuji is a mountain because it looks like a, a small peak in a gigantic, tumultuous sea. Um, but as someone who currently spends a fair amount of time working on enormous Lego sets with um, some young men, um, it 
it's pretty cool to see uh, Lego art taken in this direction. So my recommendation are two different ways of appreciating the art of Hokusai. Oh my God, what a great endorsement. All right, well, I have, uh, I have two very quick endorsements this week. Uh, the first is there's a, I, I, if, I, if I haven't totally misread it, there's this interesting semi-covert rivalry between two Yale historians, Samuel Moyne, M-O-Y-N, and Timothy Snyder. Snyder, of course, has become famous with his little book on tyranny and various, to my mind, extremely perceptive diagnoses of the contemporary situation through the lens of European fascism. And the bone of contention between them appears to be whether or not we're living in a fascist moment, to what extent the analogy to Europe, you know, in the 20s and 30s is the apt one uh, with Snyder on the firmly on the pro side. And Snyder wrote a piece for the Times Magazine that he must have at the very last minute have updated um, to include the events of January 6th. It's called uh, The American Abyss, a historian of fascism and political atrocity on Trump, the mob, and what comes next is just so perceptive. And I have to say, to my mind, it's game, set, match in this argument, which I find ridiculous to begin with. I mean, clearly Trump is a fascist in aspiration, and that should be important enough. Like, we, it's possible that this is the beer hall putsch, right? It's possible that we're 10 years away from the state apparatus being completely commandeered by the fascist element. Arnold That's, Schwarzenegger called it Kristallnacht. I yeah, mean, not, no, exactly. I mean, chief political uh yeah. analyst i turned to in dark times but <laughs> but right it's like no i mean i mean how how can you withhold that judgment at this point like up on what i mean i have a set of speculations about what motivates samuel moyne who in many ways is a very brilliant you know fairly young historian but uh but he's just wrong he's just plain wrong and he's morally wrong i mean he's more than just sort of wrong in any sort of factual sense he he his own moral imagination is failing grossly where snyder's is is being incredibly perceptive and premonitory in ways that we better heed because it could be crystal locked it could be more like the beer hole which we don't know i mean but but the point is like you know a sp- you don't you, you know you've got to you've got to fight it early right and with everything you have, and we are no longer early is the important thing. And I, anyway, I think it is both a, a a really precise, perceptive, nuanced essay, as well as clearly a call to arms that, you know, really alerting us to what we're up against. And he makes this in very, very enlightening distinction that we all know, but he makes it so clearly between the breakers and the gamers, the people who actually sincerely out of whatever nihilistic impulse, just want to break the current system totally, right? Like utterly destroy it. You know, so Cruz and Hawley maybe. And the gamers like McConnell, who actually McConnell's an institutionalist, but he wants to use this id force of the breakers in order to achieve his institutionalist games. And he talks about January 6th as the moment where the gaming and the breaking finally came head to head with one another. As, as Mike Pence, you know, and McConnell, these gamers, were clearly in danger of being lynched right by by the breaker faction right by the by the shock troops of the breaker faction i mean you these words you can scarcely utter them without feeling as though you're in a movie but you're not um so anyway i highly recommend this essay and then on a slightly lighter note you know i have this like cherished little canon of music i can't listen to because i love it too much i I don't want it to become overly familiar my delicate sensibilities won't allow that to happen but i i luckily i found a nina simone song i'd never heard before that is as beautiful as anything she's ever done. It was brand new to me. It was like finding a new Beatles song or Shakespeare sonnet or whatever. 
I wonder if people know it. It's off of the folk album that she did, which is probably why I didn't know it. I actually don't think that's a great record of hers. It's good, but it's not great. But she did this song called Twelfth of Never, and uh, I'd love it if we could go out on it. I mean, I just to me, it's just superlatively beautiful, like unsurpassably great Nina Simone, and maybe that will give us all a little bit of solace. Anyway, uh, thank you, Dana. It was a pleasure. Thanks, Julia. Thank you. You'll find links to some of the things we talked about today on our show page. That's slate.com slash culturefest. Please email us. We do actually really, really enjoy it. We try to get back to you at culturefest at slate.com. You can interact with us on Twitter. Our feed is at Slate Cult Fest. Our producer is Cameron Drews. Our production assistant is Rachel Allen. Our theme music is by the wonderful Nick Bertel. For Dana Stevens and Julia Turner, I'm Stephen Metcalf. Thank you so much for joining us. We will see you soon. Until the twelfth of never, and that's a long, long time. Step into the world of power, loyalty, and luck. I'm going to make him an offer he can't refuse. With family, cannolis, and spins mean everything. Now, you want to get mixed up in the family business. Introducing The Godfather at ChompaCasino.com. Test your luck in the shadowy world of The Godfather slot. Someday, I will call upon you to do a service for me. Play The Godfather now at ChompaCasino.com. Welcome to the family. No purchase necessary. VGW Group. Voidware prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply.